Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Scott Harrison. He is the founder of Charity Water. Really excited for you to hear this one. Scott's story behind setting up the incredible charity is such an interesting one. He's a real hustler and someone I really admire. And he really just picked a massive goal and had a massive vision and is bringing it to life with his charity. So Charity Water has now raised more than $360 million. It's provided over 9 million people with clean, safe drinking water and has funded over 35,000 water projects across 27 countries. So Scott set up Charity Water in 2006 after travelling and seeing the effects of dirty water himself. The organisation set out on a huge mission and they want to bring clean water to every person currently living without it and i really love charity water for the fact they've reinvented the charity model they have a 100 percent transparency model which is pretty radical transparency in a world where a lot of companies don't tell you exactly where things are going so every single penny of the money that you donate to the charity you know exactly where it's going and you can even get sent a gps link which shows you exactly where the money's gone and you can kind of follow along and and feel good about the fact that your money is going to something and you can see it so um this episode is quite a special one because i am turning 30 this week and to celebrate i wanted to work with charity water on raising some money so um if you go to the link charitywateruk.org forward slash emma um you can leave me a birthday present if you want to i mean it's not for me it's for the charity but i would really appreciate that i really really care about this charity i know there's so so many out there just a reminder of the link it's charitywateruk.org forward slash emma if you've ever enjoyed listening to my podcast i would really really appreciate it asking for things is super hard if you have anything going spare i'd really appreciate it so I hope you enjoy this one. And thanks again for tuning into my podcast. Really appreciate it. So here it is. So I know a lot about you and I find your story to becoming, you know, one of the most well-known people in the charity sector. So inspiring. Will you break it down for people sure. in a nutshell? Um, I know it's a long story, but, no, I'd love to. but it's a I'll good I'll try one. and do the abbreviated. So uh, I was born in, in Philadelphia, which is a couple hours outside of New York City. A uh, very middle-class family. My dad was a business guy. Mom was a writer, a journalist. And when I was four, there was a terrible carbon monoxide gas leak in our house. The gas company had put in a defective furnace and we all started getting sick because it was in the winter and all the windows were closed. And then on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom collapses unconscious mm-hmm. on the floor. So she was kind of the canary in the coal mine. And after a long series of blood tests, the doctors find these massive amounts of carbon dioxide in her bloodstream. My dad finds the leak himself with a plumber friend, mm-hmm. rips out the heater. Uh, and unfortunately, mom's never the same again. So she just doesn't recover. And her immune system irreparably shuts down. Uh, Dad and I bounced back. So we were only sleeping in the house and and she was spending all 24 hours and actually fixing up the basement to near the leak. So she uh, becomes uh, an invalid, uh, allergic to the world. From this point on, chemicals make her sick, soaps, perfumes, the ink from books. Uh, We prepare bizarre containment rooms for her in the house covered in aluminum foil. Uh, You know, visits every doctor, every clinic, and the diagnosis every time is you have a severely compromised immune system, avoid exposure to all these things that make her sick. And really, the world made her sick. 
I was an only child. You know, I, I was thrust into a caregiver role uh, early on and uh, loved my mom, wanted to be a doctor when I grew up, a uh, very uh, conservative Christian home. So my parents didn't actually sue the gas company for negligence. They, they didn't want to become bitter and believe that, you know, God would show them, you know, the, the bright spot in us. So I grew up that perfect church mm-hmm. kid playing piano every Sunday, you know, in Sunday school. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't sleep around. I didn't swear. Uh, and then 18 happened. And mm-hmm. you can imagine, uh, you know, the, the 18-year-old repressed kid waking up one day saying, now it's my turn. Time to have some fun. Time to look out for number one. And let me go and do all that stuff I wasn't allowed to do and see how it feels. So I moved to New York City, uh, joined a band, which was a terrible idea because we all hated each other. So we broke up a couple months later. But I uh, stumbled into the nightclub profession. And I found that this was a fantastic way to rebel in style. So if you did want to you know, piss off your parents and break all the rules, you could actually get paid to drink in public. And you would drink for free and your friends would drink for free. And if you could get the right people inside the right clubs, you could make a lot of money you know, selling bottles of champagne for, what, you know, 500 pounds. So uh, there goes the next 10 years. So we could just fast forward to the blur that was uh, climbing up New York City's social ladder, flying around to uh, Fashion Week, you know, chasing the, the model scene to Milan and Paris and uh, picking up every vice that you might imagine would come with working at 40 different nightclubs. Uh, two packs of, you know, so now we'll flash forward. I'm, I'm 28 years old. I'm smoking two packs of Marlboro Reds a day, and I've done that for 10 years. So I have a coughing problem. I have a serious drinking problem. I have a cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, you know, uh, marijuana problem. Uh, I've got a gambling problem, and I've got a pornography and strip club problem. So pretty much every vice short of, you know, mainlining heroin uh, I've picked up. And I'm miserable. I, I hate my life. Uh, even though I'm making good money, uh, it looks glamorous on the outside. You know, I'm hanging out with movie stars sometimes and, and rock stars and, you know, spraying champagne from the DJ booth over the reveling crowd. Imagine if you'd had Instagram back then. Oh, my gosh. I don't know that. Uh, yeah. God, <laughs> might think, still be. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, my parents! Imagine my parents following me during those those that period. So, you know, they they were so sad uh, that they're. I mean, I'd gone prodigal. I'd gone rogue. I mean, I was living out the biblical parable of the prodigal son. You know, I'd given him the finger, and I just sunk to the lowest depths of degeneracy. And you know, I recognized it, and I realized uh, on a, on a trip to South America with a, a girlfriend that I wasn't in love with and a, a beautiful house and servants waiting on us and magnums of Dom Perignon and all, you know, the, the yacht attached to the house, all of these things that I thought would make me happy, all the things that I'd been reaching for, I realized they were never going to make me happy. There would never be enough. Somebody would always have more. And it was this insatiable desire for, uh, for you know, for these markers of success and you know I had this moment okay I'm I, I, I got it I'm morally bankrupt I'm spiritually bankrupt I'm leaving the most meaningless legacy a person can leave you know if I continue down this path I'm probably going to die before 40 because I'm going to take the wrong drug one night uh, if I do make it yeah, you know, my tombstone is going to read here lies some guy that got a bunch of people wasted you know maybe I got a million people wasted and you know, I really took stock of my life. Uh, this was a period, uh, this began kind of a six-month period of self-reflection. 
And uh, it ended six months later with me asking the question, what would the opposite of my life look like? Like, could I start over at 28 years old uh, with a clean slate? And what might that look like to serve others? Like, could, could I be useful, I think, was the, was the question. And my only idea, Emma, at the time was to apply to some of the famous charities that I'd heard of. You know, I applied to the Red Cross and I applied to the Salvation Army. I think I applied to, I might have applied to an Oxfam at the time. And, you know, I, 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 I wanted to be useful in some way. I didn't want to be paid. And then, as you can imagine, the denials start rolling in. So one by one, every charity says, you know, you can't sit with us. <laughs> Right? You're, you're sitting in the nightclub business. I mean, how would you be useful to us? We're serious humanitarian people over here. So I was so frustrated because being a pretty radical guy, I'd actually sold, I'd liquidated my life. I'd sold all my possessions. I remember putting up 2,000 uh, DVDs up on eBay in a single lot, getting a couple thousand dollars for them, just trying to purge the whole life. And I was very fortunate. One organization finally did accept me and say, hey, if you are willing to go live in Liberia on our humanitarian mission, and if you're willing to pay us about 400 pounds a month, then you can join our mission. I'm like, perfect, opposite, <laughs> poorest country in the world, and I'm going to go broke doing this. So I said yes, and that's really where you know, this new journey started. Wow. It was really one extreme to the other, wasn't it? Pretty extreme. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's almost like you did like a social experiment of like getting... The, like the money and the yachts and the wealth and the famous people and you actually had that unique experience of being like wow this really isn't the answer to anyone's problems yeah and believe me I never had um, a yacht but uh, I, I saw the richest people and there was no correlation between happiness you know in, in fact what I saw in our scene specifically was a lot of broken marriages you know a lot of <laughs> 60 year old guys running around with you know girls younger than their daughters mm -hmm. and of course their daughters didn't want to even speak to them anymore and it, it was just it was really a life of excess and I was the one kind of facilitating that I brokered that you know the more people would come into the club uh, to you know do uh, you know things that they didn't want to talk about the more money we would make because mm. I feel like you can sometimes see your whole life flash before you and be like oh wow that could be me like that could be my future and you clearly change things but with the with charity water so you could have set up any like focus on a charity why did you go with water yeah, well, the experience led me to Liberia, uh, this first humanitarian experience. And I did have a moment where I quit everything. I mean, I, I said, look, I'm going to smoke my last cigarette. You know, I'm going to, uh, I'm never going to touch drugs again. I'm never going to gamble again. You know, I'm, I'm never going to set foot in a strip club or anything like that again. You know, I, I wanted to, I thought that my actions would need to kind of follow this intention for a new life. Uh, and I wanted to leave all of that behind, you know, the, the, the life of vice. So that, that was a really important moment for me. Um, to just say, I'm, I'm done with all of it. Can I step into a new experience? Um, I also uh, changed my context or my community so dramatically because I went to post-war Liberia. Charles Taylor, the warlord, had just been I just fled the, the country to Nigeria. We went in with 14,000 United Nations peacekeeper troops and uh, we're picking up the pieces. So I'm, I'm surrounded now by these amazing humanitarian doctors and nurses and surgeons who have the opposite intention 
for their life. I mean, they're saying, how can we be useful? How can we use our hands, our scalpel, our gifts to serve people who have no access to medical care? So I think that really, you know, such a dramatic change. You know, one, um, I've been walking around with nicotine patches and, you know, trying trying to just shed my old life, but I'm I'm surrounded by these amazing people. Um, I wound up spending two years primarily on a medical mission, but as I traveled around Liberia, in other parts of West Africa, I came face to face with people drinking dirty water and the water crisis. Uh, and in these countries, half of the people in the country were drinking from terrible swamps, from ponds, from rivers, uh, water that I wouldn't have let my dog drink. And I realized that this was the cause of so much of the disease that our doctors were seeing. Uh, at the time, I remember the stat was half of the world's hospital beds are filled with people who have a waterborne disease. Mm. Half the sick people in the world were sick because of bad water. And I think it was of of a special contrast to me because I used to sell water in nightclubs in New York for $10 a bottle to people who wouldn't even open the water. And they would roll in, order 10 bottles of Voss, half sparkling, half flat, and they just let it sit there. And then they drink champagne or vodka instead. So coming face to face with people who had never had clean water to drink while a guy like me was selling it in bottles to people who didn't even open the bottles and break the seal. Uh, I just, I had my issue. You know, I'd I'd seen a lot of things. I'd lived in a leprosy colony. I'd I'd seen the amazing work of these doctors doing cleft lips and cleft palates and facial tumors. But I just couldn't believe, like, how could you be healthy if you didn't have clean water? How, how, how prosperous could your life ever be? And at the time, there were a billion people worldwide without clean water. So I came back to New York after two years, and I was 30. My friends thought that I was a total bummer because I wouldn't party with them anymore. And I'm showing them the pictures I've taken of you know people drinking disgusting water, and I'm asking them for money. So I definitely got thrown out of a couple DJ booths. <laughs> you know, they're like, "You're killing my buzz. Please go back to Africa, <laughs> Scott." Oh my God! Uh, there was a responsibility to do something about what I'd seen. You know, again, this wasn't a drive-by mission. It wasn't like I, I went on a mission trip for seven days and I painted the orphanage. You know, the sixth color it had gotten painted that year. Um, I mean, this was an an almost two-year immersive experience embedded with doctors uh, learning about their work, learning about this issue, and coming back saying, wow, maybe I could do something about this. Maybe the same skill of promoting that could get thousands of people drunk you know, to cue outside a velvet rope and, and create the mystery of the club inside. Maybe I could actually talk about humanitarian work. Maybe I can invite people to a different kind of party, a party of generosity or compassion or empathy where they're finding a way to, you know, to end suffering um, that, that I could connect them to. So water was such a, you know, it had such a clear picture that this would be the issue that I would work on. And what if I could be a part of getting everybody on earth access to clean water? What if I could lead a movement of getting people to care, raising money, you know, building a, a charity that would do that? Um, so that was the mission. And then I guess the, I had the advantage, and I know, you know so many entrepreneurs are, are listening and, and maybe even social entrepreneurs. I just didn't know how to run a big institutional charity or how to do it. So I had the advantage of talking to everyday people. I was 30 years old. And my friends worked at MTV. You know, they worked at banks. They worked in fashion. And they said, oh, I don't give to charity. Oh, I don't trust charities. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I, I saw that this was going to be really hard to accomplish the mission of raising awareness and money for clean water because the system was broken for so many people. And everybody seemed to have a, a charity scandal they could pull out of their back pocket. Charities that mismanaged funds, charities that did the wrong thing um, you know, in developing nations, charities that you know, hired their cousins and nephews and uncles and put everybody on the payroll and none of the money actually went to the field. Yeah. So I thought, well, what maybe, you know, I don't know any better, how would I solve those problems through a business model? What would, I just kept asking people, what would your perfect charity look like? Like, what would it, what would make you want to give? And uh, I came up with this, a couple of these ideas uh, that have been foundational to Charity Water and I think, you know, have led to a lot of the growth. Um, the first was just, we promised to give 100% of every donation we ever received, every, you know, pound, every dollar, every euro, whether somebody gave one pound or a million pounds, we said 100% will always go directly to build water projects that will give people clean water, no overhead. And then I actually opened up a separate bank account and vowed to raise the overhead separately. And I believe that there would be a, a very small group of people who could get excited about paying for the the staff, the office rent, the flights. You know, these might be entrepreneurs. These might be people who built their own business and realized the value of those overhead costs. But most people in the public just don't trust charity. You know, I, and we talked about this the last time I saw you in New York. You know, 42% of Americans don't trust charities. 70% of Americans believe charities waste their money. I think it's even worse here. I mean, the, the people that I talk to oh, here yeah, in London, I mean, they've, they've got like 20 scandals that they can pull out of their back pocket and say, look, you know, somebody else has done wrong. So this 100% model, I thought, would speak to a lot of those objections. If we could promise a child that, you know, the four pounds she raised from a lemonade stand would go directly. Then the second pillar was just this uh, promise to build uh, a hyper-transparent charity that would prove all of this money. So we would prove the impact of our work and we'd use technology to do that. I was very fortunate. I met the Google Earth founder when Charity Water first started and I realized, oh my gosh, Google is building this free place where we could geolocate, we could post satellite images of every well, every rainwater harvesting, every water project that we build anywhere in the world. And anybody could just grab a GPS device for, you know, 50 pounds at the local, uh, you know, Best Buy or whatever and go uh, see all these projects. So proof became this second pillar. We said, not only are we going to use 100% of your money, we're going to show you where the money went and we're going to prove the impact. It's amazing. I think that really sets you apart so much, the 100% thing, because I think we're in a time as well where so many businesses as well are trying to get involved in doing good, but then they'll give like one pound per 10 pound sale or whatever. And it's oh, just, even that's generous. Normally I mean, it's one it's pound not per even 100 that. pounds. So with... Um, because you're so good at getting people to give you money and I know that you talk a lot about how storytelling is a massive part of that and I know that Richard Curtis always says you know do what you're good at and then turn that into something charitable so you were obviously good yeah, at getting people the, to buy he's the master he's raised like, more money than <laughs> than uh, than gosh than we have so what is the most effective way for you to 
get those donations from like the big players you said it. it's it's storytelling uh it's whether it's a child who's going to give you know one pound or if it's a, a billionaire who's going to give 10 million pounds uh people respond to stories you know if i if i tell you right now the statistics of the global water crisis so 60 663 million people right now as we record this are drinking bad water so about a tenth of the planet 52 percent of disease caused by bad water uh 40 billion hours wasted by women walking for water in Africa. People just kind of numb out when they hear these statistics. So we've really tried to you know, tell the individual stories of people uh, who are trapped in this crisis, um, but also people getting clean water. You know, there's, there's a story I wrote about in, in, uh, in the book. Um, of a, I lived in a village in Ethiopia where a 13-year-old girl had hung herself after spilling her water. And, you know, I remember hearing the story saying, oh, there's no way it's true. Like, kids aren't hanging themselves mm-hmm. because, you know, they spill their water. And I went and lived in this village and, and I walked in her footsteps and, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was 90 degrees. She was walking up and down mountains. And, you know, I, I found out that one day, right before she reached her house, after an eight-hour walk, she'd stumbled. Uh, she'd broken her clay pot, which was this valuable asset for her family. She'd spilled all the water that she spent eight hours and she's like I'm not going back that's it mm-hmm. and you know I, I remember standing next to the tree where you know she'd she'd hung herself and the elders found her and uh, and capturing that image of this kind of lonely tree you know in the middle of of a plane and you know I, I asked her friend I, I met her best friend living in the village I said why why do you think her name was Letakiros why do you think Letakiros uh, didn't just go back for more water. And she said, oh, it probably would have been shame mm. because she would have thought that she let her family down. Her family needed that water. Uh, her brothers and sisters needed it for dinner. Her Now she'd broken the clay pot. You know, this was a valuable, and they're going to have to come up with money to go and replace it. Mm. And she just, she had failed so badly because she slipped and fell. You know, a story like that, I mean, it moved me. Uh, to say, oh my gosh, like what an injustice. We have to help all the 13-year-old girls out there that are walking eight hours for disgusting water who might slip and fall and feel ashamed. Uh, and, and you know, we do want to help them. And on the opposite end of that, so we don't leave it there, mm-hmm. uh, there was a woman in Uganda that got clean water through a charity water project. Uh, her name was Helen Appio. And we, we often will go into the villages and we say, you know, how's your life different? How has water improved your life? And this woman said, well, you know, I used to walk a far distance and I never had enough water to provide for my husband and my kids. And she said, you know, I'm a Ugandan woman. We always put our families first. So she said, I would never use the water for myself. Mm-hmm. I would wash my kids' school uniforms. I'd wash my kids' bodies. I'd garden. I'd, I'd, you know, cook for the family. I'd give them the water to drink. Obviously, she would drink water. But she said, I never washed my clothes or my body. And she said, now that there's clean water in my village, she said, I can take all the water I want. And she said, now I'm beautiful. And we actually were like, of course, Helen, you're beautiful. We don't really get it. Um, you're a beautiful Ugandan woman. She said, no, I, I feel beautiful because for the first time in my life, I have the water for myself I can wash my clothes I can bathe my face and my body and you know you think of like these are the stories and and I would have hundreds of them you know I've now been to 69 countries Uh, I've been to Ethiopia 31 times so I mean I can tell you so many stories of of both uh, despair Uh, I was with a, a woman in Niger not too long ago who lost eight children and she named all of the kids she told me the ages of, of each of their deaths. Two of her kids survived. And she stood next to this disgusting well uh, with contaminated brown viscous water with, with bugs in it. And that's just all that she'd known. That's all that she had. 
And the terrible thing was she was sitting on top, her, her house was on top of a massive aquifer of clean water. She didn't have the 10,000 pounds to tap into that uh, in that case. And we were, you know, we were able to help. So I think the storytelling is just, you have to go and, and you know, live them in a way. And so, it's such a kind of um, a universal understanding of like a basic human need i know obviously there's many other things but like water like we all need water to survive and we say that like i didn't i was born in a middle class family yeah my childhood you know was tough going up but i didn't choose to be born into a world where i'd always have clean water when i travel to niger you know to the desert i can afford bottled water so i pack up a land rover you know with a week's worth of of water uh you know, Leta Kiros was born in a village. She was one of the 10. She was one of the unlucky ones. And I think, you know, for, gosh, now for 12 years, we have just invited people to um, to consider others, to think about, you know, this as a, obviously as a basic need, as a need that water touches education, it touches women and girls, it touches, uh, it touches health so dramatically. You know, one in three schools in the world, Emma, don't have clean water or a toilet. So you, you, there's all this data now between girls' education and the lack of water and toilets at the schools. You know, a teenage girl is not going to go to school for those four or five days a month if the school doesn't have clean water or toilets. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then what happens? She falls behind in her studies. Then what happens? Well, there's already enormous social pressure for so many of these girls not to get educated because they're so useful. They're the ones collecting the water, collecting the firewood, helping out around the house. So water is just this, it's like the, uh, this onion, you know, yeah. you, all like these things not, that we never think about. Water, it's like the knock on effect. Yeah. It touches of all of, it touches every aspect of life. Um, it's funny. People tweet at me a lot when the water in their high rise building gets turned off for an hour, you know, oh, thinking of charity water today. I'm like, Oh, you have no idea. But I mean, Apart from that, it's like, when's the last time you've been thirsty? I can't think of the last time I've even been thirsty. You know, at marathons. I mean, somebody's just handing cups out every step of the way. Mm. So it's just such a part of our, of our daily life. And we buy bottled water when we don't even have to. The, the great thing about it is it's actually a solvable problem. Um, we would know right now how to help all 663 million people. So uh, unlike um, maybe pancreatic cancer, right? We have people furiously looking for drugs and immunotherapy. And, you know, can we find the cures for some of these things? Waters is not like that. We know how to do it. Now, we haven't created the will to do it. We haven't raised the, the money uh, to do that. But there's not a single person alive that we can't say, we'll get you clean water. Now, the solution agnostic, you know, Charity Water has been solution agnostic, so a lot of different things work. We fund wells and rainwater harvesting systems and biosand filters and carbon filters and uh, 13 different technologies now across 20-some countries. But it, you can always get it done. You can always help someone get clean water. You can solve the problem. And it's also a binary good. So unlike education, maybe, if I was building schools in Africa, you know, you might sit there and say, well, how good are those schools? Tell me about the quality of the teachers. Are those students really learning? Water's cleaner, it's dirty. And you know that if you've taken a child or a family or a community from unsafe, dirty, contaminated water and you've provided clean water, you've universally... Uh, impacted them for the better and that must keep you going you know having run this charity for so long you know you are seeing change and and seeing it in real life i mean seeing the water shoot out of the ground as 300 people dance around a drilling rig and women you know have tears streaming down their faces seeing clean water for the first time uh it is it is amazing uh it's an amazing thing to be you know 
to be able to provide. Um, so, and you know, the, I guess the last thing about the model is, um, you know, we only work with local partners. So I really believe for the work in all of these countries to be culturally appropriate, for it to be sustainable, it must be led by the locals. So Charity Water doesn't send people from Europe or from America to India or to Cambodia or Malawi to go drill wells. We really, we partner with the locals and then we increase the capacity of their organizations. So we buy them more drilling rigs. We help them hire more local skilled hydrologists. So our role is really trying to create a movement around clean water, getting everyday people to pause for a moment, think about it, uh, ask them to contribute, and then make sure that the work is actually done by the locals. Mm-hmm. So it's really the locals that are getting the credit uh, as they lead their their countries forward. So that's been fun yeah. too. I've I've been in countries where we've spent 50, 60 million pounds over a decade, and they have no idea who I am, who the organiz- who Charity Water is. They celebrate and know the local leadership, the local partner. Love that. Love that. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so cool because you're facilitating something that it's not like coming in and being a savior. So you're expanding as well. To the with UK. The we UK. Are. So we're in London right now. Yeah. And it's so nice that you're here and that you're here. There's a lot of water in London. Often yes. falls from the sky. Yes. It was trips. raining today <laughs> and it was horrible. So can you tell me a little bit about the London plans? Yeah. Um, I think, look, it's, a, it's an international idea. It's an international issue. We, we started in the States. Uh, and, and really, you know, I should say, it, it's been a grassroots effort. You know, now over 2 million people from 110 countries have contributed to Charity Water. Uh, and that's, you know, they've given over 300 million pounds in total. But really, when you break it down, it's very small amounts that have, you know, driven this, this uh, kind of movement. And, you know, we've now been able to help uh, just shy of 10 million people get clean water across 27 countries. Wow. So about 166 of the global problem uh, solved by, not by me, not by Charity Water, really by this amazing community of givers. And we just saw a real appetite for giving here in the UK as we looked at uh, where people were giving, where people were talking about it. Um, I think part of that has to do with the model. I think the 100% model, this idea of hyper-transparency and proof uh, is unique or, or um, maybe is less common here in the States. There are a lot of, or here in, in the UK, uh, in the States now, there are tons of charities that are doing charity water-ish type, type things. Uh, so we just saw a lot, of, uh, a lot of heat here. The gift aid is pretty amazing. I mean, the fact that, mm-hmm. uh, that the UK government is actually adding on to, to people's donations, uh, just so the money good. goes farther, we're able to do more with it. And you know, we came here uh, really with, with two ideas that have worked uh, not just in the States, but around the world, asking people to donate their birthdays uh, if they're willing to actually run a fundraising campaign for us. Again, promising that 100% goes. Uh, or to join this giving community called The Spring, which is uh, like Netflix or Spotify for clean water. You know, it's, it's a bunch of people who are showing up every single month, giving a little bit that adds up to a lot for clean water. Um, I, what am I? A member of you're the spring. A spring member. You're yes, a spring member. Yes. Exactly. Um, as I am love I it and my wife I as well. I see it every month and I just think it's just a small thing, but And that's something that the regular. UK has innovated in. I mean, the, the UK has actually uh, done really well by getting a bunch of people to sign up for causes and say, hey, be consistent. Don't just drive by this cause. You know, give, uh, I don't know, 10. I think our average here is 16 pounds a month. Uh, so it, it actually adds up when you have so many people just consistently showing up. 
And I think knowing that 100% of that doesn't pay my salary or anybody's salaries or flights, 100% of that goes to the field. Um, that's allowed the spring to go. So the spring, which we call it, is uh, UK is one of the top, I think top four, top three or top four countries now in the world and growing to be quickly the fastest. Um, you know, the birthday idea, we, we talked about this a little in New York, but Charity Water actually started with my 31st birthday in a nightclub. So day one of the organization, 13 years ago, I'm like, I don't have any other ideas, but I think I can get a club for free, and I think I can get all the booze donated. So I threw my 31st birthday party, gave my friends open bar, and said, ah, but there's one difference. You have to come in, you have to donate $20 at the door, or I won't let you in, and we're going to take 100% of the money we raise, and we're going to do our first few projects and see if we can prove the model. And that night, we took about 12,000 pounds. We took it straight to northern Uganda. We fixed a few broken wells, brought them back online. And then we sent the pictures of clean water flowing, the GPS coordinates, the satellite images, back to the 700 people that came to the party and said, you did this. Wow, so you did the first ever one. The first ever one was a birthday. Yeah. Uh, And people were blown away. They said, I never expected to hear back from a charity I gave so little money I came to a party I got you know free drinks this is amazing we actually did something together and the charity told me where my money went so that was kind of the proof of concept 13 years ago and we said let's just do that on repeat as many ways as we can use technology to connect donors to the impact of their their sacrificial giving um, then the birthday idea happened a day a year later I said look I'm done with the nightclubs uh, it doesn't scale anyway and I just started thinking about the concept of birthdays and how we celebrate them I said I've got enough stuff you know I'm, I, I don't need a, a belt or a tie or a gift card um, you know most people don't need the, the socks and the handbags and just all the stuff that we get uh, people don't even have clean water. So I wondered if I could use my birthday as a giving moment, involve my friends and family uh, in something that would actually not benefit me, but benefit others. And I thought the sticky idea would be that I would ask for my age in dollars. I'm like, everyone I know has $32 that they can give for my 32nd birthday, especially if 100% of the money goes and they can see where it goes. So I wasn't sure that this would work, but I just start emailing everyone I know, hey, will you donate $32 for my 32nd birthday? And to my surprise, it works. Uh, I actually flew out to Africa on my birthday and I drilled the first well that my friends and family had paid for via satellite. And I showed them the clean water flowing. Uh, Then this seven-year-old kid in Texas came across the idea, and he'd given to my birthday campaign. He said, well, I'm going to donate my seventh birthday. So this kid starts knocking on doors, and instead of asking for $32, he's asking for $7. He raises over $20,000. Wow. Then we had an 89-year-old donate her birthday and said, look, I'm turning 89 I've been blessed. I've lived a long life. I was born into a life of privilege and and I've always had access to healthcare and clean water. What if my 89th birthday could help other people have a chance to live to be 89? Uh, And certainly they need water to do that. So she donates her 89th birthday and she's asking for $89. So soon this this movement of birthdays um, springs up and people like Jack Dorsey at Twitter and Daniel Eck from Spotify and Angela Ahrens from from Burberry and Apple, you know, start donating their birthdays. Even Kendall Jenner. Kendall Jenner donated her birthday. I really Will love Smith. going on the website and looking uh, it's really at, looking at it's all really of them. It's really fun. And, and these people find us. I mean, that's the amazing thing. Will Smith uh, and his wife, Jada Smith, happened to both be born in September. So they donated their birthdays. Then actually came with me to Ethiopia to see the impact of their birthdays. So that idea really began to spread. You know, now has raised, raised gosh, 
probably over 55 million pounds wow. in aggregate from you know what a hundred thousand plus givers uh, and people giving up their birthday uh, and help two million people get clean water so that's one of the ideas that uh, we've just seen people in the UK have been doing that already they've been giving up their birthdays they're using pounds or instead of dollars we have some people you know using euros um, so really that's that's it you know we, we want to bring charity water here we just want to expand the movement we think that people here care about international issues there's a real sense of people wanting to uh, to be global citizens, to use their time and their talent and, and their extra cash uh, in the service of others to end some of the suffering that they see in the world. And if we could create a charity that they trust, a charity that shows them their impact, you know, I, I hope the movement will grow here. Absolutely. And to anyone listening to this podcast right now, I have just put live my birthday page. I'm doing that. Annoying. Oh, you said you were going to do this. I'm yeah. doing that annoying so cool. thing when people bang on about turning 30 and being like, oh, I feel really old now. But 30 is a big birthday. I'm making it into a positive by doing this because you're right. It is kind of you're doing a good thing. And I obviously really care about the charity, but also it's kind of sustainable not asking for presents that you don't need and i don't need more stuff and i just think it's a brilliant idea okay well I, i'm gonna be your first donor i'll give you 130 pounds okay oh God, that's so, so you've generous, at least Scott. you've at least gotten a few people clean water just thank to start you, thank you and you could you quickly just um give a little rundown of the one that you did with Kristen bell because she went out there as well she didn't did. she? she did yeah and we we that's right i, I invited you um Yes, she had done her 30th birthday. That's right. And she raised $100,000 from her fans and, and her family and then said to me a year later, I actually want to go and see it. And we're like, great, come jump on a plane. So she was able to go to Ethiopia and go to the communities where her birthday donations, she made a video, um, which I thought was really cool. You know, that I love these closed loops because I'm sure some of her fans gave 30 bucks and said, this is really going to go anywhere. And then a year later to see Kristen there, you know, 31 years old standing in these villages saying, this is the drilling rig that your money, you know, went to. This is the drilling rig that is, is providing clean water. Um, so it was really a beautiful thank you. So you are more, I, I invited you, you're more than welcome to come. That'd be very cool. And go see, go actually meet the people helped uh, through your 30th birthday, through you know any of your, uh, your listeners that would respond and want to be a part of the community. I've done eight birthdays now, so it's a great experience. <laughs> I did my son's birthday, uh, and I did, let's see, I just turned 40 uh, recently, so I did the big 40th. I wasn't, oh, I I wasn't doing was charity water for my... Th- yeah, it was a pretty good one. <laughs> it and, was a pretty good one. And if anyone wants to be a member of the spring, can they? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we set up a new website in the UK. It's just charitywateruk.com, charitywateruk.com, and they can learn about the spring or the birthday idea. Um, and then I think we gave you a special link, which is charitywateruk.com slash Emma. Yes. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the ask for you. Hey, listeners, you love Emma. She uh, she provides valuable content, and uh, you could give her a birthday gift, and then actually see where it goes. And you'll come with me, and we'll make some great content from the field, and and share that story. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to go right when I'm done and donate 130 pounds. CharityWaterUK.org/slash/Emma. Thank you, thank you for saying that. I'm going to be I'm going to be asking though, because I feel like. I have to practice what I preach as well because a lot of my work is about like asking for more, asking for more money, asking for more like in the world. And this is my moment to have to ask. Because it's quite vulnerable, isn't it? 
asking it people is, for it stuff. It is, and I used to have a really hard time with it in the beginning. And you know, I, people would say to me, "Scott, you're not asking for yourself. Like, you don't keep any of this money. Like, this money goes." But it's still. Yeah, it does put you in this position where you might feel like you owe. So I've gotten over it now. I mean, <laughs> so now I'm shameless. I've been at it for 13 years. And uh, again, you know, the, that's the beauty of the 100% model, at least, is it, you, don't, you don't keep any of the money. Um, you know, people don't know this. We even pay back credit card fees. So, you know, when Amex or Visa takes that 2 or 3%, um, our small group of overhead donors, now 133 families and entrepreneurs, they actually pay back that transaction fee so that wow. every pound, uh, every dollar, every euro goes straight to the field. Amazing. There's no excuse not to. You know, we feel like we're trying to reimagine charity. You know, charity means love. It's actually a beautiful word. And, you know, I hate that it's become stigmatized and that people are cynical. I mean, charity means to look after your neighbor in need and get nothing in return. And I think we need people moving towards that. Uh, more people, you know, engaging in the practice of love. It's a, it's a virtue. It's rather than walking away from it saying, oh, that charity screwed up. See, that's why I'm not going to give. Yes, um, and I think so we actually true. deprive ourselves by not giving and, and that's giving of our time and look you know maybe there's people listening that are are passionate about local causes I mean I just I'm just a big believer in just giving more just saying yes um, you know my wife and I try and give 20% of, of what we make every year and, and that's a blessing we want that number to go up uh, that's what we're focusing on not you know a, a house in the Hamptons or a nice car you know it's how can we how can we be a blessing to more people how can we use uh, the gifts that we've been given to help others. And I think the more you do that and you can see the results, it's, it gets, you can almost get addicted to giving, which is a good thing, maybe rather than addicted to consumerism. And hopefully, hopefully more ch- charities will be doing the 100% model in the future. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, look, I... I, I mean, you I'm are actually, a hustler. It's really hard, if I'm going to be honest, because, you know, imagine, we now have 90 full-time employees in New York. Uh, imagine having to raise the money for 90 salaries separately uh, each and every year. And, you know, I've, we've really done that. We've never touched a penny of the or you know a pound of the the public's money uh, for anything else but it's really hard so i think what i really believe what i tell you know social entrepreneurs that are starting charities uh, for causes they believe in is just just tell people where their money goes people are open to myriad value propositions they just want to know where their money goes if i told people listening right now or i told you that you know our biggest need in the uk office was a a broken copy machine needed to be fixed and it was 160 pounds you would pay 160 pounds to fix a broken copy machine so that we could you know print our stuff and get on with the mission you know people want to be useful but it's the not knowing it's that 160 pounds going into some black hole that maybe goes in an endowment maybe never gets spent right that's that's what I, i kind of preach against so i think uh, again, just tell people where their money's going, show them the impact, create these virtuous impact cycles. Like when you give, this is what happened, cause and effect. Uh, and hopefully you can inspire people to, to give more, uh, to, to say, oh, wow, maybe I can trust again. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can be useful. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I always love hearing Thanks your for stories. Having me. Thanks for giving up uh, your birthday. No, I, thank I can't you. wait. I'm, I'm really going to go and donate. excited. Thank you.